If you've got a Bible with you, go with me to the book of Genesis. We're going to be in chapter 37 today, Genesis chapter 37. While you are turning there, and if you are new to the Bible or don't have a Bible with you and you'd like to follow along with us, there are Bibles that are in uh, the chair racks in front of you, so you should be able to find one of those if you're looking. And if you don't know where to find things in the Bible, Genesis is the very first book of the Bible, uh, so you should be able to find that rather easily and make your way to Genesis chapter 37. So, while you're turning there, I have one little thing that I want to, actually one very important thing that I want to uh, share with you today. I want to recognize uh, June Mahan. June is sitting over there. I'm not going to ask you to stand. Can you just raise your hand so people know that? That's June over there. June has faithfully taught uh, the little ones here for many years. Uh, the threes and fours, that's very very small age group. She has been uh, teaching them Sunday school for many, many years now, has poured into their lives. And that's one of those, that's one of those uh, things that takes uh, a lot of work. It's a big investment, and you are believing that down the road there's going to be a payoff in that investment as you give God's Word to young children week in and week out. And I'm bringing June up because June is retiring from that uh, today was her last Sunday there in that class, and so I wanted us to just honor her this morning for the service that she has done. Uh, she, has been, uh, she has been faithful in that ministry. We have a little uh, a card and, and a gift for her that we want to give you. It's at my seat, so I'm not going to make you come up here. Uh, raising your hand is the hardest thing that you got to do, but you do need to see me after the service so that I can give you the card, but let's all thank June for the work that she has done. All right, if you want to be following along with us, you should be in Genesis chapter 37 by now if, you would, uh, if you'd like to be there. As a uh, junior in high school, LeBron James was destined for greatness. Sports analysts were already talking about him in glowing terms. As a junior in high school, they were already talking about the fact that he was not going to need to go to college, that he was going to just skip college entirely, and that he was going to be able to go straight from high school into the NBA. And not only was he going to be able to go straight from high school into the NBA, but people believed that he was going to be good right away, even in making that jump. He became so popular that his high school basketball games had to be moved from their high school gym to a larger stadium because there were so many spectators that were coming to watch. ESPN started bringing their cameras and broadcasting his junior high school basketball games on national television because there was such a desire to see him play. And at the age of 17 years old, he made the cover of Sports Illustrated. And not only did he make the cover of Sports Illustrated at 17 years old, but in big block letters, the headline next to his picture, you may remember this, I, I still remember it, but I, I guess I'm a basketball fan. And you may not be, but I can still remember it, these big block letters, the caption, the chosen one. Can you imagine 
at 17 years old, walking by the newsstand at your 7-Eleven, and seeing your picture on Sports Illustrated with the term, the chosen one, next to your face. I don't know about you, but my ego would not be able to handle that. I would be insufferable to be around. I know, I'm insufferable to be around now, okay? And I'm not even on the magazine. People were calling him the next Michael Jordan. The expectations on LeBron James were sky high. In fact, when he was young and he was being interviewed, he recounts in a story that one person in the interview told him that if he was anything less than a first ballot Hall of Famer by the end of his career, his whole basketball career would have been a failure. Can you imagine carrying those kinds of expectations? His early fame, of course, drew detractors, critics, and of course people that were jealous of him and jealous of the future that he seemed to have. There were people in his life and people who were writing about him who seemed like they wanted to see him fail. The weight of those expectations would have been almost too heavy for anyone to bear. Well, today we are going to be looking at another 17-year-old. This 17-year-old also struggled under the weight of his own destiny. And while Joseph never appeared on the cover of Sports Illustrated, to my knowledge, he could have had that caption put next to his picture, the chosen one. Because in in a very real sense, Joseph was the chosen one. And Joseph's destiny sparked a great amount of jealousy among his brothers. And that jealousy would grow and grow and grow. That jealousy would eventually lead him on a journey that would take him from the fields of the promised land where he worked as a shepherd to places of power in one of the greatest nations in the known world at that time, Egypt. But if you come from a church background, or if you've ever read these stories in the Bible before, as many of you have, then you know that the path to Joseph's destiny has a lot of detours along the way. There are a lot of difficult things that he is going to have to face as he steps into the destiny that God has for him. But I want to begin talking about this story of Joseph. It begins in Genesis chapter 37. If you've been with us in our series in Genesis, then you know that the author of Genesis has has put within the book uh, several markers that clue us in that we are looking at a new section. And this, this verbal marker is this little phrase, these are the generations. And when you see that phrase, these are the generations, that is our author's way of showing us that we're starting a new section. Now, not every one of these new sections is, is, is a story. Sometimes that phrase, these are the generations, just gives us a genealogy of some kind. But other times, these are the generations is the author's way of telling us, I'm now about to tell you the story about so-and-so. 
And we're going to see that in verse 2 of Genesis 37. So if you're there with me, let's read the first four verses together. This is what the Word of God says in Genesis 37 and verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, Israel, remember Jacob's name was changed to Israel, and so we see his name interchangeably throughout the rest of the the narrative being Jacob or Israel. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. So this chapter opens with Jacob now finally peaceably settled in the promised land. He does not own a deed to the land yet, but he settled peaceably there. The Bible calls it the land of his sojournings. And the narrative, the focus of the story is now going to shift that lens off of Jacob, whom we've been with for several chapters, And it's going to zero in on just one of his children, Joseph. We see there, as we read, that that Joseph is just 17 years old at the time. And one of the very first things that the text tells us is that his brothers do not like him. They do not like him at all. And there are at least three contributing factors to the reason he is not well liked by his brothers. The first is his mother. He's referred to in our text as, as being in the fields with, with the children of Bilhah and Zilpah. And let me remind you, Jacob took four wives, and those four wives had a bidding war for Jacob's affections by having a competition to see how many children they could have. Jacob had a favorite wife among them. Her name was Rachel, and Rachel is not able to have a child until the very end. So these three other wives are having babies, and Joseph is number 12. So Joseph is, at the time, the only son of Jacob's favorite wife, reason number one, to dislike him. The second was Joseph's apparent integrity. His father asks for a report of what his brothers are doing in the fields, and the text tells us he brings back a bad report, and we might might read that as, as Joseph just being an annoying tattletale, but the text doesn't really give us any indication that's what is actually the case. The text is simply telling us that Joseph is telling his father like it is. Reason number two, he's extremely disliked. And then, of course, the third reason that he's disliked is he's got a fancy robe. (laughs) He's been given a a coat. He's been given a robe by his father as a symbol of his father's favor. His father has not learned from his own experiences. Remember, Jacob was the favorite of his mother. Esau was the favorite of their father. And this favoritism creates this lifelong conflict between these two brothers, 
And, and Jacob apparently has not learned his lesson. Because not only does he have a favorite child, but he gives that favorite child something to wear so that as he walks around all the time, it's a very clear reminder, I like him the most. So this text tells us his brothers hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. And what Joseph is about to do is make it worse. Look with me at verse 5. The Bible says, now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now, I've told you before that, that Genesis is not just a book of history, though it is that. Genesis is also a work of literature. And Genesis is carefully and artfully arranged. And as we've traveled through the book together, I've tried to point out ways that it's carefully and artfully arranged. And I'll just point out one more to you as we're talking about the story of Joseph as it begins in 37 and goes through the end of the book. The story of Joseph is arranged around three sets of dreams. So two dreams, two dreams, and two dreams. Joseph has two dreams. Then he's in prison and there's two more dreams. And then there follow two more dreams after that. Joseph is, has things revealed to him about his own destiny through his dreams, and he is going to interpret the dreams of others as his life moves forward. But Joseph has a dream about the harvest time, and he uses imagery that would have been very familiar to them, I've got a picture that I want to put up for you of sheaves because I don't see sheaves very often, and maybe you don't either, unless you have more of a rural background. So what I there on the screen behind me is a picture of sheaves. It's wheat, it's grain that has been bound to get, has been, has been harvested, and then has been uh, bound together in manageable chunks that can be carried around. And you can see there a field full of sheaves. And Joseph gathers his brothers around as he's wearing his fancy coat and says, hey, I've had a dream. We were all working in the field. We're all binding sheaves and mine stood up and your sheaves all bowed down to mine. And that went over great. His brothers were thrilled to know that their youngest, and you've got to think the age gap between Reuben, the oldest, and Joseph, the youngest, at 12, the age gap has got to be significant between them. They're less than thrilled to hear about this. And they ask him if he really believes that the 12th child out of all of them is going to be ruler. And if, you're, if you've been keeping a hate counter going... 
They've said for the third time, the text has told us for the third time, they've hated him even more. In verse 4, verse 5, and verse 8, their hate for him is carefully recorded for us. But Joseph can't stop having dreams. Let me refer you then to verse 9. The Bible says, then he dreamed another dream. And told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. We're laughing a little bit about this because Joseph is not liked. He's wearing something that tells everybody he's not liked every day. And he can't keep his dreams to himself. But he's simply reporting what's happening. Because Joseph does have a destiny in front of him. His family is indeed going to bow down to him. The imagery for the sheaves in the field is imagery that foreshadows the fact that he is going to be providing grain for the known world through a time of famine. So the things that that Joseph is seeing and interpreting in these dreams are indeed true. And of course, his, his, when he reports this dream about the sun and the moon and the stars, his family immediately sees themselves in this, and his father at least outwardly rebukes him a little bit. But you can see at the end of the text, Jacob also knows that he's the younger. He knows that convention has not always worked, even in his own circumstances, that, that there was a prophecy about him that, that the older would serve the younger. And so this is not new territory for him. And so it's almost like Jacob hears these dreams, rebukes him outwardly, but also files it away as if to, to say that there may be more to this than he's letting on. That's as far as we're going to go in the Joseph story this morning. Regardless of what any of them knew at the time, Joseph did indeed have a destiny in front of him. His family was going to bow down to him. Almost the entirety of the known world was going to bow themselves down to him. And that sounds great, right? Who doesn't want that destiny? You're telling me at 17 years old, I get to be the chosen one? That I'm going gonna, I'm gonna arrive, to arrive at a place of significance and power and fame that is so great that I can have a dream about it telling me that the sun, the moon, and all the stars are going to bow down to me. I'm in for that. That sounds fantastic. 
But if Joseph had only known the path that actually lay in front of him, he may not have been so excited. He may not have wanted to walk that path if he had known all of the steps along the journey, because that path is going to involve betrayal of the deepest kind. That path is going to involve being sold into slavery. That path is going to involve being falsely accused. That path is going to involve being thrown into prison for a period of years. That path is going to involve being taken away from everything he had ever known and everyone he had ever known to a place of a language that he did not speak. Not for six months, not for a year or two years, but for a lifetime. If Joseph had known all of those things that were coming, he may not have wanted to walk the path. But Joseph says something profound at the end of the story. And I want to take you to the end of the story to see that profound thing that he says, which many of you know already. But I want to take you to the end of the story to see his perspective on those experiences that he has at the end, because that perspective shapes how he walks through all of those profoundly difficult experiences. At the end of the story, and we'll get into this in much more detail when we, when we finally arrive there in a couple of months, but in the very last chapter of Genesis, Genesis chapter 50, Joseph is having a conversation with his brothers, and he reveals in the course of that conversation the kind of perspective that enabled him to experience betrayal and imprisonment and false accusations and being forgotten and all sorts of other things. He reveals his perspective on that in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20 because he says this to them. And there's context there that I won't give you now. We'll wait till we get there. But he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Joseph's life was shaped by that perspective. And ours must be shaped by that perspective as well. Which is why the truth that I want you to walk out of this room with this morning is very simple. Very difficult to apply to our own circumstances, but is as true today, now, as it was for him there, then. It's simply this, God means it for good. God means it for good. It is a tiny word. One of the smallest words in the English language. But that tiny word, it, in God meant it 
for good encompassed a huge number of things. It is, it is absurdly reductionistic the way Joseph talks to his brothers about it. When, God, when he says God meant it for good, this, this little pronoun is referring to a whole bunch of very painful life experiences. So as we work through the rest of this book together in the next few weeks, we're going to explore exactly what the it is or was in Joseph's life that God meant for good. But the it in Joseph's life was not something that is just true for Joseph, as I said just a moment ago. It's something that is true for every single person here if you are a child of God. If you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have been born again into God's family, then you need to know that God means it for good for you as well. Joseph shows us in practice what the New Testament teaches us in principle. And I'm going to go to a verse that should be familiar to many of you. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, which says this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. That verse, if you are a Christian, makes a reference to your destiny. What is the last phrase of that verse says? It says, to those who are called according to His purpose. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you have have been born again, if you are a Christian, then you have a fantastic destiny ahead of you. God has called you from darkness to light. He has transferred you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son whom He loves. And He has an eternity for you where He is going to lavish you with the riches of your inheritance in Christ. You haven't even begun to think or understand the destiny that lies in front of you as one who has been called according to God's purposes. The Bible says that people that fit that category, the people that are are going to enjoy that kind of destiny, the Bible says that those kinds of people are the people who then need to view all of their life experiences, the good, bad, and ugly, through the lens of the reality that God is going to work all things to that good end. In stage magic, if you've watched any magic shows, one of the things that the illusionist will do is he'll bring somebody up on stage and and say, pick a card, any card. So the person comes on stage and, and there are a variety of ways that that card can be chosen. The magician might hand them the deck, the the magician might shuffle the cards and just say, tell me when to stop, and they stop at whatever card. 
the, the magician may fan that deck of cards out and say, put your finger on the card that you want, or, or pull the card out of the deck that is going to be your card, and then look at it and remember it. And there are a variety of ways of, of doing this trick, and there are a variety of variations on this trick, but, but one of them is that eventually there's this sealed envelope that's on the table there, and the card that that person chooses is going to get put back in the deck, and it's going to get shuffled up, and then there's going to be a moment where the magician hands the person the envelope and says, open up this envelope and tell us what's in here, and lo and behold, they're going to open the envelope, and that card is going to be in there. When the magicianist, the magicianist, that's a cross between an illusionist and a magician. It's a very special kind that most of you never heard of. When the magicianist says, pick a card, any card, they're lying to you. I hate to burst your bubble. But they can't really do magic. Now, what they do is amazing, and I love watching it. But when they say, pick a card, any card, they are doing is they are giving you the illusion of choice. It feels for all the world like you are picking a card of your own free will. And it feels for all the world like they're going to they're going to put that card back in the deck or they're going to throw it up in the air. They're going to do whatever it is the trick says that when you open up that envelope and you say, how in the world did the card I chose get in this sealed envelope that's been sealed the whole time? That's amazing. You must be a magicianist. When that happens, they are not doing this at random. They are employing something that magicians call a force. A force is when a magician makes you choose the card they want you to choose. And they have a variety of ways of doing that through sleight of hand and all sorts of other means to make sure that you and everyone else in that theater feels like you've drawn the card at random, but they made you pick that card. And there's a reason they made you pick that card. They have to have that card in the sealed envelope. They're using a force to ensure a predetermined outcome. Now, we have, in the English language, all kinds of phrases that come from the world of cards. When we say, we'll say something like, the deck is stacked against me. And what do we mean when you say that the deck is stacked against you? Well, you mean that there is uh, some sort of unfair thing happening here, that, that somebody has some sort of unfair advantage against you because, because someone has manipulated the deck. It's, it's stacked against you. Or we'll say things like, we've been given a bad hand. And what do we mean when we say you've been given a bad hand? It means as you look through that hand of cards that you're playing in the game, you don't have anything that's going to win. There's nothing that you can do, there's nothing that you can do with that hand of cards to be successful. Or we'll say something like, well, you've just got to play 
the hand you're dealt. And what do we mean by that? We mean that no matter what hand you have been dealt, you don't get to look at somebody else's hand and say, well, I wish I had those cards. If you're playing a card game with somebody else, you hold your cards close to your chest. You're not supposed to show them to everybody else. And you don't get to look at your hand and everyone else's and say, well, I actually want hers. You've got to play that hand. You have to accept and work with the circumstances that you're given. And as we use those phrases from the world of cards, it's true. Very oftentimes, the deck is stacked against you. This world is not fair. It cheats. Sometimes we look at our life circumstances and we see them as they see the cards that we've been given as a bad hand. Why did fill in the blank have to happen to me? I'm looking around at the hand other people have been dealt and their hand seems so much better than mine. Why did my marriage have to turn out the way it did? Why are my kids the way they are? Why didn't I achieve the same success as the people that I went to college with? Why did I get sick? Why did you can fill in the blank with all sorts of things and we can we can look at our life circumstances and say I have been dealt a bad hand compared to the one that others have been given. And it's true, you and I don't often have much control over our circumstances. But let me tell you this. There is something that we often don't take properly into account. And that is the fact that when it comes to our circumstances and our destiny, God is employing a force. It doesn't matter which card you pick or which hand you're dealt because God has already decided that the whole thing turns out good. Let me make two notes about that. The outcome may not be immediately good. That's the catch. Most of us could handle some of Joseph's bad situations for a little bit. But as you're reading through the story, you you start to think, this guy has the worst luck of anybody in the entire universe. Every time things start to to look better, boom, he's right back down again. Joseph lives a huge part of his lifetime with difficulty. Let me say this further. When God says that all things work out for good, that does not mean that your life is always going to have a happy ending. There are some martyrs that would like a word. If we think that God owes it to us 
that we have some bad experiences along the way, but there's a nice bow tied around the life at the end. So we need to make sure we're working with a zoomed out enough perspective to recognize that when, when God intends everything for good, that doesn't mean, it's been five minutes, God, where's the good? You might have to wait a lifetime for it. You may not see it until you see the face of Jesus. But it doesn't change the fact that it ends good. The other note I want to make about this is that God is not asking us to call the circumstances themselves good. In fact, the Bible tells us, pronounces a woe on those who call evil good. Let me say what I mean by that. I've said this before. There are certain circumstances where you're thinking, oh, I, I wanted, I wanted the, the promotion at, at, at work, and there was something underhanded that went on there, and I didn't end up getting the promotion. But if that hadn't happened, I wouldn't have gotten this job or started my own business or whatever it is. And you can look at that underhanded thing that was done to you as good in some sense because of what it brought about. But there are other circumstances, abuse you may have experienced in your life. And God does not ask you to call abuse good. Abuse is evil. But what God is promising here in the story of Joseph and in the principle that's taught in Romans 8 is that no matter what it is, it will turn out for good. So, as we begin to close this morning, I want to ask you a question, and I want to ask you to I want you, I want to ask you to really think about this question, maybe even write the answer or answers to this question down. We've been talking about this tiny word it, encompassing a whole lot of painful things in Joseph's life. So I want to ask you the question that is the title of the sermon today, what's your it? I'm really asking you that question. And I'm willing to bet, boy, we got a lot of card stuff going on today. <laughs> I'm willing to bet that before you get the cap off the pen, there are already things coming to your mind that are your it. Why did that have to happen? It may be something that you are dealing with from your past. It may be a chronic thing that you are dealing with in your present I don't know what it is for all of you, but I do know what it is for some of you. What's your it? What are the painful circumstances in your life 
that you just can't see how this could possibly turn out for good. Whatever your it is, and I journaled through mine last night, but whatever your it is, the thing that I want you to walk away trying to believe this morning, because it's a fight to believe. What I want you to walk out of here trying to believe, asking for God's grace to believe, is that whatever your it is, God intends it for your good. And you're going to have to believe that to get through some of the things you're going to have to get through. There are some people here who have gone through some things and they have to believe it to get through because those things are so hurtful and so painful and they seem to have no good end that could possibly come from them, that we need something from outside of us assuring us that even if this ends this way, even if your life ends because of this, God's going to turn and He's going to force it. It's good. You can't lose. As I said, we can't even imagine how good it will be. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9 tells us that as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Not even your own death can separate you from that destiny. So, hinted at this, but I'll finish this way. For those of us who are here this morning and maybe you're on the the front end of life, maybe you haven't experienced great difficulties, maybe your it is as small as that word right now, but if your life is like the rest of ours, You're going to experience some stuff. And it's going to help you greatly as a young person. If you can have Joseph's perspective from the end of his life at the beginning of yours. Because there's going to be some dark days coming where you just can't see how anything could come from this. To those of you who are maybe in the middle of life or towards the end, you have probably tasted some of the bitterness that life can offer up. But you don't have to live in bitterness. You've experienced loss, but you don't have to live in loss. You've experienced betrayal, 
You don't have to live in unforgiveness. You can let go of those things if you're willing to grab a hold of the fact that God means it all for good. And I'll say one more hard thing for those of us who are here this morning who may not be Christians. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, there are lots of churches and pastors who will shy away from telling you this. But the Bible says it, and you need to hear it. Apart from Christ, your destiny is not good. And God is, in fact, not working all things for your good. And apart from Christ, your destiny is one of condemnation under God's wrath. And that might be making people uncomfortable to even hear me say that because we don't like to say that, but the Bible says it. And we are being dishonest with the Bible if we present salvation as an eternal benefits package without saying what the stakes are. The stakes are high. They are the highest stakes you could possibly imagine. And while I don't believe that it is an effective evangelistic strategy to try to scare people into heaven, if you are here with us this morning and you are not a Christian, then we lovingly want to tell you that your destiny apart from Christ is not good, but the good news of the gospel is that Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice for our sins and rose again in triumph over sin and death so that you could come to him in repentance and faith be welcomed as a child into God's family and start to experience the destiny that God lays out for all those who love Him. Here's what we would ask you to do now with this information. The Lord is working in your heart right now. We would just ask you, wherever you are, to bow your head and to talk to the Lord while we sing. You don't have to do anything to make yourself stand out. You can stand with us. You can sit at your seat. If you need help, there's going to be people up on either side here that will talk to you about this. But don't leave this place today and put it because you do not know if you have tomorrow. For the rest of us, written down what your it is. Maybe as we sing today, you just need to speak to the Lord and reaffirm to Him, ask Him to help you believe that whatever it is, it ends good. Let's pray. But our prayer this morning as we encounter the painful difficulties of life in a broken world where, in fact, the deck, the deck is stacked against us. 
where we do experience difficulty after difficulty. And Lord, I know there are people here, I know what they're going through. I pray that you would give us the eyes of faith to believe that whatever man or this world throws at us, you intend it for good and that you, in fact, work all things for the good of those who love you, to those who are called according to your purpose. If there is someone here who does not know Jesus this morning, then I pray that you would give them the faith and the courage to come to you in faith to receive the forgiveness of sins that you freely offer and to experience the joy of freedom and the destiny that lies ahead of us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.